You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, July 25, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Have you ever uh, been in a situation where you saw someone, and if you're really honest this morning, maybe you would say it was yourself, but you saw someone hopelessly trying as hard as they could to keep up with the beat of a song while it was going. And no matter how hard they tried, it, it just, it couldn't work, right? Have you ever seen that? No. I joke. That's what we do every Sunday morning here. If you ever try to watch us clap to a song, we can't keep a beat to save our life. But to be really, to be really honest, now I'll be less funny here, maybe, um, Seriously, have you, have you ever been in a situation, maybe at a wedding reception, birthday party, or something like that, where you've witnessed someone else, I won't say you, but maybe someone else, who trying as hard as they possibly can, no matter how hard they try, it seems like their body, when they're dancing, is hopelessly fighting against the beat and the rhythm of the song. <laughs> you ever seen that? If you're in your 40s or, or older, you, you remember the, the sitcom of our day was Seinfeld, and you might remember Elaine's full-body dry heave set to music. I think we got a little clip of it for you young guys. Like, right there. Right there. Like, no matter how hard you try, the, the body just can't seem to surrender to the actual beat and the rhythm of the song. And, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's just right there, like burned into your mind. So I won't make you raise your hand if that's actually you, but you've probably seen someone like that. It's painful. Yet at the same time, when, when you have the opportunity to observe someone, and this has to be you, I'm sure, observe someone who is able to surrender to the rhythm and the beat of a song and their body is in tune with what's going on, it, it can actually be stunning. But when they're not able to, you get the Elaine, the, the full body dry heave set to music, and it's painful to even look at. Well, I, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there is a soul level equivalent to the Elaine, to the full body dry heave out of step with the beat and the rhythm. It's called busyness. That's what the dance is called. And you can see her moves in our anxiety, in our stress, and our constant sense of hurry and overconsumption. If you could see our soul, it would look like Elaine trying to dance. I mean, it doesn't matter what the demographic is in our country today, young, old, what part of the rural, rural, urban, doesn't matter. Ask anyone today how they're doing, and you're most likely to get an answer that sounds something like, I'm doing good, but what? Busy. Busy. Busy because the culture that we have taken in day in and day out tells us that busyness equals importance. Busyness means I matter. I listened to one guy joking about this. He said, you know, I never hear anyone answer that question, how you're doing. Well, I'm bored. 
and, and I'm using Netflix to deal with my own level of mediocrity. <laughs> right? I mean, we live in a place and a time where being busy exposes and tells people around you that you matter to someone, right? That you're important. If you don't seem busy, you're likely to be interpreted as lazy or apathetic, or better yet, that you're not really that valued or needed. And so we wear the stress and the anxiety and the impatience and the depression like badges of honor in a battle to be culturally approved and culturally productive. You know, it's evident in so many facets of our life. It's, it's evident in the way we work, the way we handle our responsibilities. I won't go through all the stats. I'm sure you've read them and you've heard them, but I don't know if you knew this, but we work on average 137 more hours a year than the Japanese. And they are the global prototype for overwork. In fact, they have a word in their language called karoshi, which means death by overwork. And we work on average 137 more hours a year. On average, we work 260 more hours a year than the British. 499 more than the French. <laughs> You're laughing. It's the French. It doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> they don't really count, but, you know. No, no, I don't mean that. Some of you probably are French. Sorry. We love you. We're glad you're here. But so many of our, you know, traditional structures and even guardrails and boundaries around things like this have all but been eliminated. The idea of a traditional day of working from nine to five, 40 hours a week, going to the same place, into the same office, working with people, accomplishing the same tasks on the same mission is all but gone. Not just generationally, but throw COVID into the mix. Throw the last 20 months into the mix, and that reality is all but eliminated. Not to mention now we live in a time and an age when we carry our work with us everywhere we go in our phones. It's in our pockets. So pervasive is our availability in that sense to our work that the most recent numbers say 75% of Americans who own a smartphone sleep with it. 90% of those who sleep with it look at it immediately upon waking before they're out of bed checking email. At the same time, the most recent studies, and I would dare say it might even be higher now, but it takes a couple years to get study data in from these things, but... The most recent study data says that 37% of Americans take less than a week's vacation. And those who do go on vacation for any period of time, a week or less, well over 70% of them stay in touch with their workplace while they're gone. It's not just in our work where these moves of busyness show up, the anxiety and the stress. It's in everything about our lives now. We're constantly being bombarded about all the new places, the new experiences, the new things that we're missing out on. FOMO is not just for millennials. FOMO is a reality for Americans in general. A pervasive fear that we're missing out on something because we're always scrolling and seeing something else, something new, something someone else is doing, something new I haven't tried, a new restaurant to get to, a new bar to get to, a new thing. I just can't seem to get it off. So we go, go, go and hurry, hurry, hurry to not get anywhere in particular. And if you have a family, oh my goodness, all of a sudden, every child has to have their own individualized schedule or you're depriving them somehow. 
It's activity after activity. Somehow we have begun to believe that our kids are going to end up in a gutter if they can't program a computer by nine and compete on an elite level in sports by 12. Somehow we're ruining them. So it's go, go, go. Hurry, hurry, hurry. And what do you think we're passing on in that? What kind of a lifestyle do you think they're going to live into? And this idea of hurry, I mean, I have to admit, I said it in the, in the 930 and I thought about it between Sir 815 because I said it and I thought about it. Was that really accurate? And it is. It, my worst moments as a human, as a parent, as a dad, as a friend, my worst moments are always when I'm hurried. I mean, love is the way of Jesus and hurry is the utter antithesis. When I'm hurried and I want to be somewhere at a certain time or I feel the pressure to be here, 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 there's nothing loving that comes out of me to anyone who can't meet that demand. Friends, it was Corey Timboom who said, if the devil can't make us bad, he'll certainly work to make us busy. And this same reality holds true for the church. We're not immune to this reality either. Amongst my contemporaries, those who serve as lead pastors in churches in America today, there is an epidemic of anxiety and panic attacks and depression, of adultery and even suicide amongst American pastors. Some of you have seen some of the stories over the last few years that have made the headlines. There's this frenetic sense of pace and hurry and ungodly expectation that the American church has on its leaders. We expect pastors to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, available and reachable for me because I must be the exception to the rule. Of course, it's for me. And when we're available and reachable, we're supposed to be knowledgeable immediately about everything that we're being asked about. As I listened to one pastor write about his journey in this and his struggle through this, he said, I finally came to the end of always needing to be the best teacher, which is an expectation that the American church has on its pastors to be good teachers. You know, open up the Bible, to understand the Bible, to assimilate the context and the information of the Bible, and then communicate the Bible in a clear and effective way under the power of God. And let me just give you an idea of what that's like. And it's okay, I love this part of my job, but let me give you an idea. If any of you are required to give presentations, real presentations at your job, right? You spend, I have no idea how much amount of time trying to get those things ready, right? Maybe if you're in school, you remember you have to give a presentation in rhetoric or or in logic or something like that. And you spend an entire series of a semester getting ready to present this thing, to understand, to assimilate, to create the right argument, to expose what you're trying to do. Now imagine having to do that every single week. You can't change the deadline. It always shows up, and you've got to go from a a book that was written thousands of years ago and understand it and be able to assimilate it and then be able to apply it. And on top of that, when you tend to find someone who can do it half well, people continue to show up. And then all of a sudden, the expectation is that that same person becomes a fairly decent CEO of a small size or mid-sized business. Because in some sense, the church really is a business. We are registered with the state. We do have employees. We do have boards. We do have responsibilities. But we're not like any other business. We're a nonprofit. So all of a sudden, you've got to be a decent executive director of a nonprofit. And when you have people on staff, you've got to be able to manage them and be a good manager. But then you've got to be a good counselor. You've got to be a good community organizer, which requires being a good strategizer. You get the picture. 
And the pace can get frenetic. And as I read this one particular pastor wrestling with his own burnout from this expectation, he put his finger on the reality that when you find someone who can do half of those things fairly decently, you get a church out of it. But if you're not careful, that same pastor can certainly gain a church while he loses his own soul. And that's what you're seeing happen over and over and over again. Now, in myself, by by wiring, I have a particular contrarian streak in me. I push back against expectations that I don't think are right or that I don't want to deal with. It's often sinful in my life. I've pushed back against a lot of these expectations and how I operate and how I live, but I can't say that my pushback against a lot of these things has created a structure where my soul feels any more restful or any more nourished or any more peaceful. And when that's the case of the leaders in the church, what do you think it is we pass on to everybody else? It's the fruit of the same anxiety and restlessness and hurry. Do, 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 go, go, go. And do you realize that this level of hurry that church leaders begin to apply and pass on to their churches is an entire level of busyness and hurry that your secular neighbor doesn't have to deal with? And you look at how hurried and busy their world is? And yet, at the same time, one of the most essential functions of God's people, according to God's word, is that we are to put on display the manifold wisdom of God, not just through our words, those are important, but how we live, our joy of living in Jesus and following his way. And so the real question I've been grappling with, and we're going to grapple with this morning and next week, is this, how are we doing with that? Does the hurry and the busyness and the anxiety and the stress of our life sound like the way of Jesus? And even if you're like me and you you come up with your own secret squirrel ways of pushing back against whatever expectations or cultural expectations you think are on you that aren't healthy, what if, what if God has already given us a rhythm, a beat, a song that pushes back against the rhythms of this world? What if God had already provided for us a rhythm to live into, a rhythm to dance to, a rhythm of his grace that when submitted to begins to produce in us the flourishing that all of our hearts so desperately crave? The good news is he has. It's called the song of Sabbath. Sabbath, it might be something you have heard if you grew up in the church. It might be a word you're vaguely familiar with. And let me say this at the outset, that Sabbath is, in God's word, both a principle and a practice. As a principle, and we'll spend a couple of weeks looking at it, it's a principle of rest, of renewal, of restoration. And as we'll see next week, even resistance And as a principle, it's a a rhythm of grace that God created for us that we're to receive, that we're to enjoy. It's a delight that God is bringing us into. And at the same time, it's a practice. Historically, God's people, the, the Israelites, and now the Jewish community around the world have practiced this principle 
starting on Friday night at sundown through Saturday night at sundown. And as we'll see, for those of us on this side of the cross, the principle has been fulfilled in Jesus, but yet I think we all too often toss the baby out with the bathwater and miss the wisdom and the practice. As a practice, Sabbath can become an instrument of formation for our soul. It can become an instrument in the hands of God's grace that cultivates our hearts. It cultivates our souls and gives us a weekly foretaste of the kingdom rest and joy that Jesus is bringing us into. As a practice of formation, it begins to habituate our hearts to this rhythm. It begins to habituate the desires of our hearts back to what God has for us. It allows us to move into our days and into our labors from this place rather than trying to get to this place. And so what we're going to do this morning and even next week is we're going to take a look at God's word and we're going to see what it has to say about this principle and about this practice. And, and if you're like me, it may very well be a time for you where you begin the process of recalibration. And I think this process of recalibration is probably going to begin with a bit of repentance for some of us. But I want the flourishing that marks the life lived in the rhythm of God's song of grace. I think I'm grown weary and tired of living with the fruit of being out of step with this rhythm. And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, with that being said, we'll begin in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the story. As Genesis chapter 1 opens... God does what literally blows our minds. He speaks, and that which doesn't exist comes into existence. We watch the process of this unfold, and, and in verse 31, we get to what you heard earlier this morning, that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Now, let's put it in perspective. You, you think about the most productive week that you could imagine ever of having had, or what the most productive week in your life would look like, and then look what God did in six days. But in particular, notice what we're reminded that God did next. Twice we're reminded about it here in the text. God rested. But I don't know how busy your world is. Huh? Maybe not, but God rested. It's a really interesting word. The word here for rest is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It's the word where we get the word Sabbath. And it literally means to stop. That's what it means. It means to cease. God stopped. God ceased. And in Hebrew literature, it's also used in one more way that begins to open this up for it as we understand it. In Hebrew literature, this same word is often used to translate 
to delight in. What does it mean for God to rest? He doesn't tire. He doesn't get burned out. What does it mean for him to rest? It means he steps back and he takes a look at the work of his hands. And he enjoys its goodness. He stands back to savor the beauty and the completeness of his work. It's hard to find a perfect human equivalent to this experience. I'll do my best to give you a very small version of what I'm talking about here. For those of you that are, uh, you know, lawn warriors out there, you're always fighting the weeds and getting the perfect lawn. Just imagine, that's not me. If I could astroturf my entire lawn, I'd be happy. My wife would tell you that's the truth. I call about it all the time. But some of you love it. So imagine waking up on Saturday morning. It's a warm Saturday morning. You go outside. You've already got the mulch there ready at the curb. You remulch all your beds. The mulch gets fluffed. The flowers are in bloom. You mow that grass. You've done everything to to make right. You edge it. It looks sharp. It looks clean. It's taking you all day to get it there. And you're hot. You're tired. And you sit down on your patio or you sit down on your deck. You grab a cold drink and you look out and you survey. And you enjoy the completeness and the beauty of what your hands have done. This is what God is doing. Historically, Sabbath is a day set aside to follow in God's footsteps as those created in his image and likeness to stop, to delight in him and all that he has done, to taste and see that he really is good. Dan Allender, who's a professor in in Seattle, he wrote a book on the Sabbath. He said, Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. You ever heard that? I had never heard that before. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intends, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it's the best day of the week. It's the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It's the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. In sabbath in in resting, do you realize that God wove this rhythm into the DNA of creation? And it's the rhythm that he calls us to live to and dance to. This rhythm of six days and one day Sabbath, it's God's rhythm. I did not know this until I began to really look into this, but the seven-day week is grounded in revelation, and every society on earth lives by it. I did not know that every other aspect of our calendar is based on something seen in nature except for the week. Did you know that? What's a day based on? How long it takes the earth to rotate? What's a month based on? How long it takes the moon to wax and wane? What's a year based on? How long it takes the earth to revolve around the sun? The idea of the seven-day week exists and is grounded in God's divine revelation. It's his rhythm 
that he wove into the DNA of all that is created to ignore his rhythm or to try to alter it. It's to go against his grain. H.H. Farmer, who was a philosopher of the last generation, said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you'll always get splinters. Period. And we see them all over our lives. In the hurry, in the busyness, in the anxiety, in the depression, in the overconsumption, and all the things that we're wrestling with in our world today. It was his rhythm. You know the last time someone tried to mess with the seven-day week? Do you know when that was? It's actually, people have tried. You know the last time someone tried? French Revolution. They tried to move to a seven-day week. It's what partly gave rise to what you may have learned in school as the proletariat. But do you know what happened when they did that? Production and efficiency dropped. Suicide rates shot through the roof. You go against the grain, you get splinters. And if we're honest, today our lives seem to expose the fact that we're trying to live to a different rhythm than the one that we were created to live in. We're trying to dance and live to a song of a different kingdom. One that doesn't understand the idea of even stopping. And as much as I love all of the advancement and benefit from all the advancement of technology that I get the privilege of experiencing living in the 21st century, a lot of it has its consequences too, right? Electricity is amazing. Light bulbs are amazing. But no longer do you go to bed when the sun goes down and get up when the sun comes up. You can keep a light on to keep yourself up for 30 straight hours, you can tell yourself you don't need as much sleep as you might actually need. You got smartphones and computers and TVs and all the blue light and all the things that they produce. We have all the advancements in technology and telling us all the other things we can add to our life and all the things we can accomplish. And it's go, 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 go. But guess what? We're not machines. Those things are machines. We're not machines. We weren't made to live that way. We were made to live to an utterly different rhythm, the rhythm of God's grace. And I can already see on your faces, because there's more of you in here than there were at 815, but it was there too, you're already starting to twitch at the idea of an entire day of just stopping. All kinds of anxiety probably in some of you about that. And the reality of it is okay. I listened to one guy talk about it. He's like, you know, it's okay if that's the anxiety because the reality of it is we have a real addiction to our hurry and busyness. It produces things in us that we want more of. And the idea of even considering that God's principle of a Sabbath in our life is going to produce something like detox symptoms in us because we become so addicted to the pace and the hurry and all the things of this world. God Sabbathed. He stopped. He surveyed the very good work and he delighted in it. And he calls us as his people into the same. And I want you to see something real quick here in Genesis chapter 1. There are two things I want you to notice. I want you to notice first that God blessed this day. And secondly, that he made it holy. 
Genesis says that the Sabbath is blessed. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you read the creation account this week, you'll see that explicitly God blessed three things in the creation account. He created animals, after he made them, he blessed them. After he created humanity, he blessed humanity. And then he blessed the Sabbath. He blessed a day. Now, on the first two, the blessing's pretty similar, right? With humanity and the animal world, his blessing was this, be fruitful and multiply. And so in the context of Scripture, when he comes to the third thing that he distinctly blesses in his creation account, it has to mean in some way that this Sabbath, this day, this rest has in it the capacity to produce more life, to reproduce When received, the Sabbath is a rhythm of God's grace that produces life in us. It becomes an ongoing source of renewal, of blessing. Who doesn't need that? He blessed this day and he made it holy. What's that? He made it holy. Literally meaning he set it apart to himself. Because holy means set apart to God. This is a different kind of day. A holy day. It has a completely different quality to it. It's not just aimless leisure. It's not just mindless leisure. It's not a day off as you and I conceive of those things in our world today. It has an utterly different quality to it. It's set apart to him that he might be enjoyed, that we might be restored. But we need to consider this part just a little bit more. So if you've got your Bibles, keep going right to the very next book, the book of Exodus. And go to Exodus chapter 20. You might realize as you get there that this is where the Ten Commandments are found. And in the story of God's people up to this point, God has called his people to himself. His people have spent generations in slavery in Egypt. God has rescued them and delivered them from that slavery. He has brought them out of Egypt. He is taking them to the land that he has promised. And he has stopped at Mount Sinai. And here he meets with his people and he gives them his word. And in these 10 commandments, you'll see in the first seven verses of chapter 20, you get the first three commandments, having no other gods before him, no idols, no graven images, not taking the Lord's name in vain. And then in verse eight, you get the fourth commandment and it's the longest commandment. Go and do the math, some of you mathematicians, it occupies about 30% of the real estate of the entire 10 commandments. And this is what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then God begins to help them understand why. It's the only commandment with the motive already in it. He goes back to this rhythm. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Note that phrase. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Again, now explicit motive. Verse 11. For... In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
It's one of the ten. Yet it is the only one of the ten that you and I feel completely free and utterly shameless to brag about breaking. Period. I don't think anyone in this room feels free and shameless to brag about breaking one of the commandments about adultery, theft, murder. But we break this one and wear it like a badge of honor. I don't know that I've ever really considered it before. God was clear to his people here that we're to remember it. Remember it. To keep it holy. To keep it set apart to God. Because if we fail to remember it, we'll wind up profaning it. And we'll wind up living our lives out of his rhythm. The sole version of the Elaine. God has commanded something that if we would stop to rightly understand his intention in it, he has commanded something that seems so obvious for our joy and for our flourishing, but we're so forgetful. We're so forgetful. And if we're really honest, we want the hurry. We want the busyness. We like what we think it gives us. It's easy to get caught up. So he's had to command, in a sense, something that restores our soul and brings us life. He's blessed. And it seems like he wouldn't have to do that, but I know it in my own life because in my own house, I almost have to do something similar to some of my family members to just drink water. Because they'll get so caught up in what they're doing and so focused on what they're doing and so busy on what they're doing, they'll go an entire day without drinking water and maybe only eating one thing. And it's like, you just need to stop and drink water. It's not that hard. You'll feel better. But nobody will do it. It's the same way with our souls. This is a day to the Lord, set apart for him, holy. It's a day for worship. It's a day for whole life orientation towards him. Where we stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. There's a particular quality about the day, a particular intention towards God about the day. But you have to stop. That's the thing I think we'll push back against the most. You have to stop. And in stopping, you're embracing your createdness. In stopping, you're owning the reality and expressing the reality that you have limits. And stopping, you're pushing back against this delusion that we all have. You may not own it right now, but you've got it. This delusion that we all have, that in our spheres of influence and responsibility, we're somehow indispensable. It's stopping It's an act of resistance against our own pride and arrogance and expectation, and we'll get to the resistance next week. But as one writer said, a pastor 
who wrestled with his own struggles. He, he wrote, holy time given to a holy God makes us more W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, aware that we are not God. We neither create nor save ourselves. He does. If we won't stop to experience the glory of God in this rest, we won't be able to glorify him in our work either. If we won't worship him in this rest, then our work will soon metastasize into the worship of some other idol, be it self-importance, control, money, or recognition. And so he said, your fear of stopping might very well reveal to you what it is you're really worshiping. Stop. It's a day of ceasing. It's a day of resting. It's not the day that you finally get to all those chores or all those projects in your house you keep pushing back on. It's not the day where you plan all those appointments that you can never get to. It's not a day where you catch up on things you missed during the week and plan for the next week. You have other days for that. In fact, in America, the majority of you have another day off as we conceive of it. That's not what this day is. It's a day of resting that we might delight, that we might join God in the celebration of his gifts and creation. It's a day of focused delight on who God is and the things that God has provided that fill our soul and bring us joy. As I listened to one pastor talk about how he's trying to work this out in his own life, in his own family, one of the things that he said they came to was on the day that they practiced these Sabbath principles, they found that they've outlawed phrases in their family like, here's something I'd like to have, here's something I want to do, here's something I think I need. It's not about what you don't have, what you want, and what you need. It's about what God's already provided and how we delight ourselves and our soul in him and his good provision, the things that he's given us that fill us, that roll spontaneously up into the right worship and gratitude to him. It's a holy day, meaning it is set apart for him, but do you realize this same holy is the root word that we get our word holiday from? It's a set apart day. So when you and I hear holy day, one of the first things we hear is no fun day. If you grew up in the South, you grew up in blue law states probably. They got really extreme. No music, no movies, things were outlawed, shut down, you can't do it because it's a holy day. Jesus deals with that in the New Testament, we'll get there next week. But this holy day is a holy day of delighting in God. It is a holiday. It's like Christmas every week without all the stress. (laughs) That's what it's meant to be. There's meant to be the same intention around it, the same preparation for it, the same anticipation about it. It's a day of stopping these labors and owning our createdness, resting and delighting in who God is and all that he has provided that we would worship. Because it's set apart to him. It doesn't mean you have to sing hymns all day long, but you could. But it's the intention to feed your soul on him. That you would draw closer to him. It's not the idea of somehow taking a day off from him. And so it's a day filled with things that shape your heart towards grateful recognition of his reality and goodness. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Because God did. God is inviting you into the rhythm of Sabbath delight and renewal. And before some of you get freaked out, there is no formula or checklist or schedule. We'll talk more about this next week if you stick with me, but a Sabbath principle lived out in your life can look different based on the stage of life you're in. Again, we'll we'll deal with that next week. The, The question this morning is, are you willing to consider stopping? Resting, delighting, that you might worship. The bigger question is, do you want to live to the rhythm of grace that God has woven into the fabric of the universe? Again, it's fascinating to me that when it comes to the Ten Commandments, this seems to be the only spiritual discipline that's actually commanded. Prayer is not commanded. Scripture reading isn't commanded in the 10. Community groups aren't commanded in the 10. But this one is. There seems to be something so significant to it for our joy in God's glory that it finds its place here. And I think we need to wrestle with that. It's not meant by God to be a burden, it's meant to be a blessing. It's a day he blessed, and it's meant to be a blessing to us. This week, I just want you to start by just sitting and thinking, what what would a 24-hour period like that look like for you? What fills your soul? What might a Sabbath principle look like in your life? Next week, we can talk a little bit more about starting where we are and what it might look like, but There's no perfect out there, but there's a principle that God has given us. And I want you to hear me say this, in all of our busyness that we've talked about and that we've tried to point out and that you know is there, am I just telling you to do another thing? Am I just adding to your already unaccomplishable to-do list? If you hear what I'm saying this morning that way, that's my fault. That's because somehow or another in this, I've miscommunicated God's intention here. I'm not trying to stand up here and do another you should, okay? I'm trying to expose what God is actually inviting us into. Because here's the thing. You don't need to practice a Sabbath principle to earn God's love. It's not required that you do this in order to be forgiven. In fact, you can Sabbath harder than anybody else around you, and God won't love you any more than he already does in Jesus. Any more than that brother or sister next to you who by faith had believed in Jesus as King and Savior and don't practice it like you. In fact, if somehow your heart gets caught up into this idea that doing this will somehow make you stand apart before God from other people, you're already missing the point. You're already going about emptying it of its intended value. The Sabbath is a rhythm of grace that's for your joy 
and good. You don't have to do it for God to love you. The Sabbath, like all the rest of the law, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. It's meant to point us to the eternal rest that God has prepared for us. It's meant to take us back to that Sabbath rest and delight and worship in the garden that our sin broke and point us towards the fullness of the Sabbath that we'll experience with God in all of eternity. And it's meant to remind us of the present Sabbath rest we have because of the work of Christ on our behalf. It's why Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you Sabbath rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find Sabbath, rest for your souls. Dane Ortland wrote about this, and he said, Jesus is that of which the Sabbath is a shadow. Jesus is the shadow caster. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He, he lets the frenetic RPMs of the heart slow down into a calm sanity. And no external circumstance can threaten that rest as we look to him. Friends, there's no amount of escapism strategies, no amount of vacation days that will give your soul the rest and the flourishing it ultimately needs that only comes from Jesus, from receiving his grace and following his way. In him, you'll find the only lasting Sabbath for your souls. But he is the shadow caster. And until he returns, the shadow still remains. A day is coming when there will be no more weeks, no more months, no more years. There will only be Sabbath. But it's not here yet. We get a taste of this eternal rest for our soul as we enjoy the grace of God in his son. Today, tomorrow, and the next day, we get a taste of that Sabbath rest. We get to live in it. The principle and the practice of a Sabbath can become for us a weekly foretaste, a cultivating of our soul for the eternal, the habituating of our heart to its proper delights and joys. So take a deep breath. The Sabbath is not another rule you have to follow and keep. It's an opportunity that God is providing you and I to enjoy him more. It's an opportunity for you and I to begin surrendering to the rhythm of his grace, for our lives to begin living in beat with his song, to express our faith that he is God, and we're not, to tangibly express that we are his, created in his image, that we're not machines, the product of time and chance, an opportunity to delight and be filled by him and his gifts, to enjoy him and his grace weekly as a foretaste of the eternal rest that he's bringing us into. Sabbath, Jesus said, was made for you. It was made for man not man for it. It's a gift. John Ortberg was a pastor in California. He said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. 
It's that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we'll just settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll just skim our life instead of actually living it. That probably typifies my last 15 years more than anything else. Easily distracted, easily preoccupied, easily settling for mediocre skimming of what God has provided and promised. I'm not telling you that you have to do this. I'm not even saying, standing up here saying, you should do this. I'm just telling you that as for me, looking back over my life and surveying my present reality, I don't think that I can be your pastor, that I can be Aaron's husband, Jude and Lois and Piper's dad, your friend, without it. I don't think I can do that any longer. I want to live according to the rhythm of the way he created it. I don't want the fruit, the full-body dry heave of soul, skimming over the life that he's offered. Sabbath is an opportunity to live into the rhythm of his grace. My own ways have left me missing out on it. And so I want us to take some time to continue to explore this rhythm that God holds out to us for our joy and his glory. And here in just a moment, as we tangibly respond to God's word, for those of you who have believed upon Jesus, repented of your sins, believed by faith that he is king, that he is savior, that he is the fullness of your Sabbath rest, you're going to be invited to come forward to take a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in your place for your sins. You'll dip it in a cup, remembering his blood poured out for your righteousness and justification. And I want you to do it remembering and expressing in your heart your confidence that he has come and he has in himself purchased the rest your soul needs, that he has become your resting place. The burden of having to prove yourself and save yourself is gone. In him, there is now and will be forever real rest for your souls. Let me pray for us and then we're going to respond together. Father, we thank you well, that you wove into the reality of our own creation a rhythm that brings us the, the rest and the delight and the flourishing that we were created to enjoy. Lord, it's so easy to try to live to a different song, to get caught up in the, the songs of our day and the rhythms of our day and to give in to the pressures, to give in to the expectations, to, to give in to the comparisons. Lord, I just ask that you by your Holy Spirit would do in our hearts the miracle that only you can do that you would create in us a longing and a desire to live according to your rhythm, your song, that we might delight in you, that we have the years and the days that you have left for each one of us to enjoy living from this kind of rest and flourishing. We ask this morning that you would do that work in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.